chapter three part one of eve of the revolution by carl becker this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three part one the rights of a nation british subjects by removing to america cultivating a wilderness extending the domain and increasing the wealth commerce and power of the mother country at the hazard of their lives and fortunes ought not and in fact do not thereby lose their native rights benjamin franklin it was the misfortune of grenville that this interweaving as pownall described it should have been undertaken at a most inopportune time when the very conditions which made englishmen conscious of the burden of empire were giving to americans a new and highly stimulating sense of power and independence the marvellous growth of the colonies in population and wealth much commented upon by all observers and asserted by ministers as one principal reason why americans should pay taxes was indeed well worth some consideration a million and a half of people spread over the atlantic seaboard might be thought no great number but it was a new thing in the world well worth noting which had in fact been carefully noted by benjamin franklin in a pamphlet on the increase of mankind peopling of countries etc that within three-quarters of a century the population of the continental colonies had doubled every twenty-five years whereas the population of old england during a hundred years past had not doubled once and now stood at only some six and a half millions if this should go on and considering the immense stretches of free land beyond the mountains no one could suppose that the present rate of increase would soon fall off it was not unlikely that in another century the centre of empire following the course of the sun would come to rest in the new world with these facts in mind one might indeed say that a people with so much vitality and expansive power was abundantly able to pay taxes but perhaps it was also a fair inference if any one was disposed to press the matter that unless it was so minded such a people was already or assuredly soon would be equally able not to pay them people in new countries being called provincial being often told in effect that having made their bed they may lie in it easily maintain their self-respect if they are able to say that the bed is indeed a very comfortable one if therefore americans had been giving to boasting their growing wealth was not any more than their increasing numbers a thing to be passed over in silence in every colony the starving time even if it had ever existed was now no more than an ancient tradition every man of industry has it in his power to live well according to william smith of new york and many are the instances of persons who came here distressed in their poverty who now enjoy easy and plentiful fortunes if americans were not always aware that they were rich men individually they were at all events well instructed by old-world visitors who came to observe them with a certain air of condescension that collectively at least their material prosperity was a thing to be envied even by more advanced and more civilized peoples therefore any man called upon to pay a penny tax and finding his pocket bare 
might take a decent pride in the fact which none need doubt since foreigners like peter calm found it so that the english colonies in this part of the world have increased so much in their riches that they almost vie with old england that the colonies might possibly vie with old england was a notion which good americans could contemplate with much equanimity and even if the swedish traveller according to a habit of travellers had stretched the facts a point or two it was still abundantly clear that the continental colonies were thought to be even by englishmen themselves of far greater importance to the mother country than they had formerly been very old men could remember the time when english statesmen and economists viewing colonies as providentially designed to promote the increase of trade had regarded the northern colonies as little better than heavy encumbrances on the empire and their commerce scarcely worth the cost of protection it was no longer so it could no longer be said that two-thirds of colonial commerce was with the tobacco and sugar plantations or that jamaica took off more english exports than the middle and northern colonies combined but it could be said and was now being loudly proclaimed when it was a point of debate whether to keep canada or guadeloupe that the northern colonies had already outstripped the islands as consumers of english commodities of this fact americans themselves were well aware the question whether it was for the interest of england to keep canada or guadeloupe which was much discussed in seventeen sixty called forth the notable pamphlet from franklin entitled the interest of great britain considered in which he arranged in convenient form for the benefit of englishmen certain statistics of trade from these statistics it appeared that whereas in seventeen forty eight english exports to the northern colonies and to the west indies stood at some eight hundred and thirty thousand pounds and seven hundred and thirty thousand pounds respectively ten years later the exports to the west indies were still no more than eight hundred and seventy seven five hundred and seventy one pounds while those to the northern colonies had advanced to nearly two millions nor was it likely that this rate of increase would fall off in the future the trade to our northern colonies said franklin is not only greater but yearly increasing with the increase of the people the occasion for english goods in north america and the inclination to have and use them is and must be for ages to come much greater than the ability of the people to buy them for english merchants the prospect was therefore an inviting one and if canada rather than guadeloupe was kept at the close of the war it was because statesmen and economists were coming to estimate the value of colonies in terms of what they could buy and not merely as of old in terms of what they could sell from this point of view the superiority of the continental over the insular colonies was not to be doubted americans might well find great satisfaction in this disposition of the mother country to regard her continental colonies so highly and to think their trade of so much moment to her all of which nevertheless doubtless inclined them sometimes to speculate on the delicate question whether in case they were so important to the mother country they were not perhaps more important to her than she was to them the consciousness of rapidly increasing material power which was greatly strengthened by the last french war did nothing to dull the sense of rights but it was on the contrary a marked stimulus to the mind in formulating a plausible if theoretical justification of desired aims 
doubtless no american would say that being able to pay taxes was a good reason for not paying them or that obligations might rightly be ignored as soon as one was in a position to do so successfully but that he should not lose his native rights any american could more readily understand when he recalled that his ancestors had without assistance from the mother country transformed a wilderness into populous and thriving communities whose trade was now becoming indispensable to britain therefore in the summer of seventeen sixty four before the doctrine of colonial rights had been very clearly stated or much refined every american knew that the sugar act and also the proposed stamp act were grievously burdensome and that in some way or other and for reasons which he might not be able to give with precision they involved an infringement of essential english liberties most men in the colonies at this early date would doubtless have agreed with the views expressed in a letter written to a friend in england by thomas hutchinson of boston who was later so well hated by his compatriots for not having changed his views with the progress of events the colonists said hutchinson claim a power of making laws and a privilege of exemption from taxes unless voted by their own representatives nor are the privileges of the people less affected by duties laid for the sake of the money arising from them than by an internal tax not one-tenth part of the people of great britain have a voice in the elections to parliament and therefore the colonies can have no claim to it but every man of property in england may have his voice if he will besides acts of parliament do not generally affect individuals and every interest is represented but the colonies have an interest distinct from the interest of the nation and shall the parliament be at once party and judge the nation treats her colonies as a father who should sell the services of his sons to reimburse him what they had cost him but without the same reason for none of the colonies except georgia and halifax occasioned any charge to the crown or kingdom in the settlement of them the people of new england fled for the sake of civil and religious liberty multitudes flocked to america with this dependence that their liberties should be safe they and their posterity have enjoyed them to their content and therefore have endured with greater cheerfulness all the hardships of settling new countries no ill use has been made of these privileges but the domain and wealth of great britain have received amazing addition surely the services we have rendered the nation have not subjected us to any forfeitures i know it is said the colonies are a charge to the nation and they should contribute to their own defence and protection but during the last war they annually contributed so largely that the parliament was convinced the burden would be insupportable and from year to year made them compensation in several of the colonies for several years together more men were raised in proportion than by the nation in the trading towns one-fourth part of the profit of trade besides imposts and excise was annually paid to the support of the war and public charges in the country towns a farm which would hardly rent for twenty pounds a year paid ten pounds in taxes if the inhabitants of britain had paid in the same proportion there would have been no great increase in the national debt nor is there occasion for any national expense in america for one hundred years together the new england colonies received no aid in their wars with the indians assisted by the french those governments now molested are as able to defend their respective frontiers and had rather do the whole of it by a tax of their own raising than pay their proportion in any other way 
moreover it must be prejudicial to the national interest to impose parliamentary taxes the advantages promised by an increase of the revenue are all fallacious and delusive you will lose more than you will gain britain already reaps the profit of all their trade and of the increase of their substance by cherishing their present turn of mind you will serve your interests more than by your present schemes thomas hutchinson or any other man might write a private letter without committing his country or with due caution to his correspondent even himself but for effective public and official protest the colonial assemblies were the proper channels and very expert they were in the business after having for half a century more devoted themselves with singleness of purpose to the guardianship of colonial liberties until now liberties had been chiefly threatened by the insidious designs of colonial governors who were for the most part appointed by the crown and very likely therefore to be infected with the spirit of prerogative than which nothing could be more dangerous as every one must know who recall the great events of the last century with those great events the eminent men who directed the colonial assemblies heads or signs or protégés of the best families in america men of wealth and not without reading were entirely familiar they knew as well as any man that the liberties of englishmen had been vindicated against royal prerogative only by depriving one king of his head and another of his crown and they needed no instruction in the significance of the glorious revolution the high justification of which was to be found in the political gospel of john locke whose book they had commonly bought and conveniently placed on their library shelves more often than not it is true colonial governors were but ordinary englishmen with neither the instinct nor the capacity for tyranny intent mainly upon getting their salaries paid and laying by a competence against the day when they might return to england but if they were not kings at least they had certain royal characteristics and a certain flavour of despotism clinging as it were to their official robes and reviving in sensitive provincial minds the memory of bygone parliamentary battles was an ever-present stimulus to the eternal vigilance which was well known to be the price of liberty and so throughout the eighteenth century little colonial aristocracies played their part in imagination clothing their governors in the decaying vesture of old-world tyrants and themselves assuming the homespun garb half roman and half puritan of a virtuous republicanism small matters were thus stamped with great character to debate a point of procedure in the boston or williamsburg assembly was not to be sure as high a privilege as to obstruct legislation in westminster but men of the best american families fashioning their minds as well as their houses on good english models thought of themselves in withholding a governor's salary or limiting his executive power as but re-enacting on a lesser stage the great parliamentary struggles of the seventeenth century it was the illusion of sharing in great events rather than any low mercenary motive that made americans guard with jealous care their legislative independence a certain hypersensitiveness in matters of taxation they knew to be the virtue of men standing for liberties which englishmen had once won and might lose before they were aware as a matter of course therefore the colonial assemblies protested against the measures of grenville the general court of massachusetts instructed its agent to say that the sugar act would ruin the new england fisheries upon which the industrial prosperity of the northern colonies depended what they would lose was set down with some care in precise figures 
the fishing trade estimated at one hundred and sixty four thousand pounds per annum the vessels employed in it which would be nearly useless at one hundred thousand pounds the provisions used in it the casks for packing fish and other articles at twenty two thousand seven hundred pounds and upwards to all which there was to be added the loss of the advantage of sending lumber horses provisions and other commodities to the foreign plantations as cargoes the vessels employed to carry the fish to spain and portugal the dismissing of five thousand seamen from their employment besides many other losses all arising from the very simple fact that the british islands to which the trade of the colonies was virtually confined by the sugar act could furnish no sufficient market for the products of new england to say nothing of the middle colonies nor a tithe of the molasses and other commodities now imported from the foreign islands in exchange of the things taken in exchange silver in coin and bullion was not the least important since it was essential for the remittances to england for goods imported into the provinces remittances which during the last eighteen months it was said had been made in specie to the amount of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds besides ninety thousand pounds in treasurer's bills for the reimbursement money any man must thus see since even governor bernard was convinced of it that the new duties would drain the colony of all its hard money and so as the governor said there would be an end of the specie currency in massachusetts and with her trade half gone and her hard money entirely so the old bay colony would have to manufacture for herself those very commodities which english merchants were so desirous of selling in america the sugar act was thus made out to be even from the point of view of english merchants an economic blunder but in the eyes of vigilant bostonians it was something more and much worse than an economic blunder vigilant bostonians assembled in town meeting in may seventeen sixty four in order to instruct their representatives how they ought to act in these serious times and knowing that they ought to protest but perhaps not knowing precisely on what grounds they committed the drafting of their instructions to samuel adams a middle-aged man who had given much time to the consideration of political questions and above all to this very question of taxation upon which he had wonderfully clarified his ideas by much meditation and the writing of effective political pieces for the newspapers through the eyes of samuel adams therefore vigilant bostonians saw clearly that the sugar act to say nothing of the stamp act was not only an economic blunder but a menace to political liberty as well if our trade may be taxed so the instructions ran why not our lands why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of this we apprehend annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves it strikes at our british privileges which as we have never forfeited them we hold in common with our fellow-subjects who are natives of great britain if taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representative where they are laid are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves very formidable questions couched in high-sounding phrases and representing well enough in form and in substance the state of mind of colonial assemblies in the summer of seventeen sixty four in respect to the sugar act and the proposed stamp act yet these resounding phrases doubtless meant something less to americans of seventeen sixty four than one is apt to suppose the rights of freemen has so often in the proceedings of colonial assemblies 
as well as in the newspaper communications of many a brutus and cato been made to depend upon withholding a governor's salary or defining precisely how he should expend a hundred pounds or so that moderate terms could hardly be trusted to cope with the serious business of parliamentary taxation reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves was in fact hardly more than a conventional and dignified way of expressing a firm but entirely respectful protest the truth is therefore that while every one protested in such spirited terms as might occur to him few men in these early days supposed the new laws would not take effect and fewer still counselled the right or believed in the practicability of forcible resistance we yield obedience to the act granting duties declared the massachusetts assembly let parliament lay what duties they please on us said james otis it is our duty to submit and patiently bear them till they be pleased to relieve us franklin assured his friends that the passage of the stamp act could not have been prevented any more easily than the sun setting recommended that they endure the one mischance with the same equanimity with which they faced the other necessity and even saw certain advantages in the way of self-discipline which might come of it through the practice of a greater frugality not yet perceiving the dishonour attaching to the function of distributing stamps he did his two friends jared ingersoll of connecticut and john hughes of pennsylvania the service of procuring for them the appointment to the new office and richard henry lee as good a patriot as any man and therefore of necessity as some pains later to explain his motives in the matter applied for the position in virginia richard henry lee was no friend of tyrants but an american freeman less distinguished as yet than his name which was a famous one and not without offence to be omitted from any list of the old dominion's best families the best families of the old dominion tidewater tobacco planters of considerable estates admirers and imitators of the minor aristocracy of england took it as a matter of course that the political fortunes of the province were committed to their care and for many generations had successfully maintained the public interest against the double danger of executive tyranny and popular licentiousness it is therefore not surprising that the many obscure freeholders minor planters and lesser men who filled the house of burgesses had followed the able leadership of that little coterie of interrelated families comprising the virginia aristocracy john robinson speaker of the house and treasurer of the colony of good repute still in the spring of seventeen sixty five was doubtless the head and front of this aristocracy the inner circle of which would also include peyton randolph then king's attorney and edmund pendleton well known for his cool persuasiveness in debate the learned constitutional lawyer richard bland the sturdy and honest but ungraceful robert carter nicholas and george with noblest roman of them all steeped in classical lore with the thin sharp face of a caesar and for virtuous integrity of very cato conscious of their english heritage they were at once proud of their loyalty to britain and jealous of their well-won provincial liberties as became british american freemen they had already drawn a proper memorial against the sugar act and were now as they leisurely gathered at williamsburg in the early weeks of may seventeen sixty five unwilling to protest again at present for they had not as yet received any reply to their former dignified and respectful petition to this assembly of the burgesses in seventeen sixty five there came from the back country beyond the first falls of the virginia rivers the frontier of that day many deputies who must have presented 
in dress and manners as well as in ideas a sharp contrast to the eminent leaders of the aristocracy among them was thomas marshall father of a famous son and patrick henry a young man of twenty-nine years a heaven-born orator and destined to be the leader and interpreter of the silent simple folk of the old dominion in hanover county in which this tribute of the people was born and reared and which he now represented there were as in all the back country counties few great estates and few slaves no notable country seats with pretension to architectural excellence no modishly dressed aristocracy with leisure for reading and the cultivation of manners becoming a gentleman beyond the tide-water men for the most part earned their bread by the sweat of their brows lived the life and esteemed the virtues of a primitive society embraced their minds with the tonic of calvin's theology a tonic somewhat tempered in these late enlightened days by a more humane philosophy and the friendly emotionalism of simple folk living close to nature free burgesses from the back country set apart in dress and manners from the great planters less learned and less practised in oratory and the subtle art of condescension and patronage than the cultivated men of the inner circle were nevertheless staunch defenders of liberty and american rights and were perhaps beginning to question in these days of popular discussion whether liberty could very well flourish among men whose wealth was derived from the labour of negro slaves or be well guarded under all circumstances by those who regarding themselves as superior to the general run of men might be in danger of mistaking their particular interests for the common welfare and indeed it now seemed that these great men who sent their sons to london to be educated who every year shipped their tobacco to england and bought their clothes of english merchants with whom their credit was always good were grown something too timid on account of their loyalty to britain in the great question of asserting the rights of america jean jacques rousseau would have well understood patrick henry one of those passionate temperaments whose reason functions not on the service of knowledge but of good instincts and fine emotions a nature to be easily possessed of an exalted enthusiasm for popular rights and for celebrating the virtues of the industrious poor this enthusiasm in the case of patrick henry was intensified by his own eloquence which had been so effectively exhibited in the famous parson's cause and in opposition to the shady scheme which the old leaders in the house of burgesses had contrived to protect john robinson the treasurer from being exposed to a charge of embezzlement such courageous exploits widely noised abroad had won for the young man great applause and had got him a kind of party of devoted followers in the back country and among the yeomanry and young men throughout the province so that to take the lead and to stand boldly forth as the champion of liberty and the submerged rights of mankind seemed to patrick henry a kind of mission laid upon him in virtue of his heavenly gift of speech by that providence which shapes the destinies of men it was said that mr henry was not learned in the law but he had read in coke upon littleton that an act of parliament against magna carta or common right or reason is void which was clearly the case of the stamp act on the fly-leaf of an old copy of that book this unlearned lawyer accordingly wrote out some resolutions of protest which he showed to his friends george johnston and john fleming for their approval their approval once obtained mr johnston moved with mr henry a second that the house of burgesses should go into committee of the whole to consider the steps necessary to be taken in consequence of the resolutions charging certain stamp duties in the colonies 
which was accordingly done on the twenty ninth of may upon which day mr henry presented his resolutions the twenty ninth of may was late in that session of the virginia house of burgesses and most likely the resolutions would have been rejected if some two-thirds of the members who knew nothing of mr henry's plans and supposed the business of the assembly finished had not already gone home among those who had thus departed it is not likely that there were many of patrick henry's followers yet even so there was much opposition the resolutions were apparently refashioned in committee of the whole for preamble was omitted outright and four resolves were made over into five which were presented to the house on the day following young mr jefferson at that time a law student and naturally much interested in the business of law-making heard the whole of this day's famous debate from the door of communication between the house and the lobby the five resolutions he afterwards remembered were opposed by randolph bland pendleton nicholas with and all the old members whose influence in the house had till then been unbroken not from any question of our rights but on the ground that the same sentiments had been at their preceding session expressed in a more conciliatory form to which the answers were not yet received but torrents of sublime eloquence from mr henry backed by the solid reasoning of johnston prevailed it was in connection with the fifth resolution upon which the debate was most bloody that patrick henry is said to have declared that tarquin and caesar had each his brutus charles i his cromwell and george the third upon which cries of treason were heard from every part of the house treason or not the resolution was carried although by one vote only and the young law student standing at the door of the house heard peyton randolph say as he came hastily out into the lobby by god i would have given five hundred guineas for a single vote and no doubt he would at that moment being then much heated next day mr randolph was probably much cooler and so apparently were some others who in the enthusiasm of debate and under the compelling eye of patrick henry had voted for the last defiant resolution thinking the matter settled patrick henry had already gone home to recommend himself to his constituents as his enemies thought by spreading treason but the matter was not yet settled early on that morning of the thirty-first before the house assembled the young law student who was so curious about the business of law-making saw colonel peter randolph of his majesty's council standing at the clerk's table thumbing over the volumes of journals to find a precedent for expunging a vote of the house whether the precedent was found the young law student did not afterwards recollect but it is known that on motion of peyton randolph the fifth resolution was that day erased from the record mr henry was not then present he had been seen on the afternoon before passing along the street on his way to his home in louisa clad in a pair of leather breeches his saddle-bags on his arm leading a lean horse the four resolutions thus adopted as the deliberate and formal protest of the old dominion were as mild and harmless as could well be they asserted no more than that the first adventurers and settlers of virginia brought with them and transmitted to their posterity all the privileges at any time enjoyed by the people of great britain that by two royal charters they had been formally declared to be as surely possessed of these privileges as if they had been born and were then abiding within the realm that the taxation of the people by themselves or by persons chosen by themselves to represent them is the only security against a burthensome taxation and the distinguishing characteristic of british freedom 
without which the ancient constitution cannot exist and that the loyal colony of virginia had in fact without interruption enjoyed this inestimable right which had never been forfeited or surrendered nor ever hitherto denied by the kings or the people of britain no treason here expressed or implied nor any occasion for five hundred guineas passing from one hand to another to prove that the province of virginia was still the ancient and loyal old dominion End of chapter three part one